Chapter thirty nine, part two of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ernst Schnell. Chapter thirty nine, Gothic Kingdom of Italy, part two. Among the barbarians of the West, the victory of Theodoric had spread a general alarm. But as soon as it appeared that he was satisfied with conquest and desirous of peace, terror was changed into respect, and they submitted to a powerful mediation, which was uniformly employed for the best purposes of reconciling their quarrels and civilizing their manners. The ambassadors who resorted to Ravenna from the most distant countries of Europe admired his wisdom, magnificence, and courtesy, and if he sometimes accepted either slaves or arms, white horses or strange animals, the gift of a sundial, a water-clock, or a musician, admonished even the princes of Gaul of the superior art and industry of his Italian subjects. His domestic alliances, a wife, two daughters, a sister, and a niece, united the family of Theodoric with the kings of the Franks, the Burgundians, the Visigoths, the Vandals, and the Thuringians, and contributed to maintain the harmony, or at least the balance, of the great republic of the West. It is difficult in the dark forests of Germany and Poland to pursue the immigrations of the Heruli, a fierce people who disdained the use of armor, and who condemned their widows and aged parents not to survive the loss of their husbands or the decay of their strength. The king of these savage warriors solicited the friendship of Theodoric, and was elevated to the rank of his son according to the barbaric rites of military adoption. From the shores of the Baltic, the Estians or Livonians laid their offerings of native amber at the feet of a prince whose fame had excited them to undertake an unknown and dangerous journey of fifteen hundred miles. With the country from whence the Gothic nation derived their origin, he maintained a frequent and friendly correspondence. The Italians were clothed in the rich sables of Sweden, and one of its sovereigns, after a voluntary or reluctant abdication, found a hospitable retreat in the palace of Ravenna. He had reigned over one of thirteen populous tribes who cultivated the small portion of the great island or peninsula of Scandinavia, to which the vague appellation of Thule has been sometimes applied. The northern region was peopled or had been explored as high as the sixty-eighth degree of latitude, where the natives of the polar circle enjoy and lose the presence of the sun at each summer and winter solstice during an equal period of forty days. The long night of his absence or death was the mournful season of distress and anxiety, till the messengers, who had been sent to the mountain tops, descried the first rays of returning light and proclaimed to the plain below the festival of his resurrection. The life of Theodoric represents a, the rare and meritorious example of a barbarian who sheathed his sword in the pride of victory and the vigor of his age. A reign of three and thirty years was consecrated to the duties of civil government and the hostilities in which he was sometimes involved were speedily terminated by the conduct of his lieutenants, the discipline of his troops, the arms of his allies, and even the terror of his name. He reduced under a strong and regular government the unprofitable countries of Raetia, Noricum, Dalmatia, and Pannonia from the source of the Danube and the territory of the Bavarians to the petty kingdom erected by the Gepidae on the ruins of Sirmium. His prudence could not safely entrust the bulwark of Italy to such feeble and turbulent neighbors, and his justice might claim the lands which they oppressed, either as a part of his kingdom or as the inheritance of his father. The greatness of a servant, who was named perfidious because he was successful, 
awakened the jealousy of the Emperor Anastasius, and a war was kindled on the Dacian frontier by the protection which the Gothic king, in the vicissitude of human affairs, had granted to one of the descendants of Attila. Sabinian, a general illustrious by his own and father's merit, advanced at the head of ten thousand Romans, and the provisions and arms which filled a long train of wagons were distributed to the fiercest of the Bulgarian tribes. But in the fields of Margus, the eastern powers were defeated by the inferior forces of the Goths and Huns. The flower and even the hope of the Roman armies was irretrievably destroyed, and such was the temperance with which Theodoric had inspired his victorious troops, that, as their leader had not given the sign of pillage, the rich spoils of the enemy lay untouched at their feet. Exasperated by this disgrace, the Byzantine court dispatched two hundred ships and eight thousand men to plunder the seacoast of Calabria and Apulia. They assaulted the ancient city of Tarentum, interrupted the trade and agriculture of a happy country, and sailed back to the Hellespont, proud of their piratical victory over a people whom they still presumed to consider as their Roman brethren. Their retreat was possibly hastened by the activity of Theodoric. Italy was covered by a fleet of a thousand light vessels, which he constructed with incredible dispatch, and his firm moderation was soon rewarded by a solid and honorable peace. He maintained with a powerful hand the balance of the West, till it was at length overthrown by the ambition of Clovis, and although unable to assist his rash and unfortunate kinsman, the king of the Visigoths, he saved the remains of his family and people, and checked the Franks in the midst of their victorious career. I am not desirous to prolong or repeat this narrative of military events, the least interesting of the reign of Theodoric, and shall be content to add that the Alemanni were protected, that an inroad of the Burgundians was severely chastised, and that the conquest of Arles and Marseille opened a free communication with the Visigoths, who revered him as their national protector, and as the guardian of his grandchild, the infant son of Alaric. Under this respectable character, the king of Italy restored the Praetorian prefecture of the Gauls, reformed some abuses in the civil government of Spain, and accepted the annual tribute and apparent submission of its military governor, who wisely refused to trust his person in the palace of Ravenna. The Gothic sovereignty was established from Sicily to the Danube, from Sirmium or Belgrade to the Atlantic Ocean, and the Greeks themselves have acknowledged that Theodoric reigned over the fairest portion of the Western Empire. The union of the Goths and Romans might have fixed for ages the transient happiness of Italy, and the first of nations, a new people of free subjects and enlightened soldiers, might have gradually arisen from the mutual emulation of their respective virtues. But the sublime merit of guiding or seconding such a revolution was not reserved for the reign of Theodoric. He wanted either the genius or the opportunities of a legislator, and while he indulged the Goths in the enjoyment of rude liberty, he servilely copied the institutions and even the abuses of the political system which had been framed by Constantine and his successors. From a tender regard to the expiring prejudices of Rome, the barbarian declined the name, the purple, and the diadem of the emperors, but he assumed under the hereditary title of king the whole substance and plenitude of imperial prerogative. His addresses to the eastern throne were respectful and ambiguous. He celebrated in pompous style the harmony of the two republics, applauded his own government as the perfect similitude of a sole and undivided empire, and claimed above the kings of the earth the same preeminence which he modestly allowed to the person or rank of Anastasius. 
the alliance of the east and west was annually declared by the unanimous choice of two consuls but it should seem that the italian candidate who was named by theodoric accepted a formal confirmation from the sovereign of constantinople the gothic palace of ravenna reflected the image of the court of theodosius of lentinian the praetorian prefect the prefect of rome the quaestor the master of the offices with the public and patrimonial treasurers whose functions are painted in gaudy colors by the rhetoric of cassiodorus still continued to act as the ministers of state and the subordinate care of justice and the revenue was delegated to seven consulars, three correctors, and five presidents, who governed the fifteen regions of Italy according to the principles and even the forms of Roman jurisprudence. The violence of the conquerors was abated or eluded by the slow artifice of judicial proceedings. The civil administration, with its honors and emoluments, was confined to the Italians, and the people still preserved their dress and language, their laws and customs, their personal freedom, and two-thirds of their landed property. It had been the object of Augustus to conceal the introduction of monarchy. It was the policy of Theodoric to disguise the reign of a barbarian. If his subjects were sometimes awakened from this pleasing vision of a Roman government, they derived more substantial comfort from the character of a Gothic prince, who had penetration to discern and firmness to pursue his own and the public interest. Theodoric loved the virtues which he possessed, and the talents of which he was destitute. Liberius was promoted to the office of Praetorian Prefect for his unshaken fidelity to the unfortunate cause of Odoacer. The ministers of Theodoric, Cassiodorus, and Boethius have reflected on his reign the luster of their genius and learning. More prudent or more fortunate than his colleague, Cassiodorus preserved his own esteem without forfeiting the royal favor, and after passing thirty years in the honors of the world, he was blessed with an equal term of repose in the devout and studious solitude of Squillas. As the patron of the Republic, it was the interest and duty of the Gothic king to cultivate the affections of the Senate and people. The nobles of Rome were flattered by sonorous epithets and formal professions of respect, which had been more justly applied to the merit and authority of their ancestors. The people enjoyed, without fear or danger, the three blessings of a capital, order, plenty, and public amusements. A visible diminution of their numbers may be found even in the measure of liberality. Yet Apulia, Calabria, and Sicily poured their tributes of corn into the granaries of Rome, an allowance of bread and meat was distributed to the indigent citizens, and every office was deemed honorable, which was consecrated to the care of their health and happiness. The public games, such as the Greek ambassador might politely applaud, exhibited a faint and feeble copy of the magnificence of the Caesars, yet the musical, the gymnastic, and the pantomime arts had not totally sunk in oblivion. The wild beasts of Africa still exercised in the amphitheatre the courage and dexterity of the hunters, and the indulgent Goth either patiently tolerated or gently restrained the blue and green factions whose contests so often filled the circus with clamour and even with blood. In the seventh year of his peaceful reign, Theodoric visited the old capital of the world. The senate and people advanced in solemn procession to salute a second Trajan, a new Valentinian, and he nobly supported that character by the assurance of a just and legal government, in a discourse 
which he was not afraid to pronounce in public and to inscribe on a tablet of brass. Rome, in this august ceremony, shot a last ray of declining glory, and a saint, the spectator of this pompous scene, could only hope in his pious fancy that it was excelled by the celestial splendor of the new Jerusalem. During a residence of six months, the fame, the person, and the courteous demeanor of the Gothic king excited the admiration of the Romans, and he contemplated with equal curiosity and surprise the monuments that remained of their ancient greatness. He imprinted the footsteps of a conqueror on the Capitoline Hill, and frankly confessed that each day he viewed with fresh wonder the Forum of Traja and his lofty column. The theatre of Pompeii appeared, even in its decay, as a huge mountain artificially hollowed and polished and adorned by human industry, and he vaguely computed that a river of gold must have been drained to erect the colossal amphitheatre of Titus. From the mouths of fourteen aqueducts, a pure and copious stream was diffused into every part of the city, among these the Claudian water, which arose at the distance of thirty-eight miles in the Sabine mountains, was conveyed along a gentle though constant declivity of solid arches till it descended on the summit of the Aventine hill. The long and spacious vaults, which had been constructed for the purpose of common sewers, subsisted after twelve centuries in their pristine strength, and these subterraneous channels have been preferred to all the visible wonders of Rome. The Gothic kings, so injuriously accused of the ruin of antiquity, were anxious to preserve the monuments of the nation whom they had subdued. The royal edicts were framed to prevent the abuses, the neglect, or the depredations of the citizens themselves, and the professed architect, the annual sum of two hundred pounds of gold, twenty-five thousand tiles, and the receipt of customs from the Lucrine port were assigned for the ordinary repairs of the walls and public edifices. A similar care was extended to the statues of metal or marble, of man or animals. The spirit of the horses, which have given a modern name to the Quirinal, was applauded by the barbarians. The brazen elephants of the Via Sacra were diligently restored. The famous heifer of Miron deceived the cattle as they were driven through the Forum of Peace, and an officer was created to protect those works of rat which Theodoric considered as the noblest ornaments of his kingdom. End of chapter 39, part 2